Are you interested in interaction design? Do you think we have the knowledge to save the world? What is the purpose of academic research? Stay tuned for answers from Professor Jenny Pei. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Jenny Pei, professor of human-computer interaction design and the leader of Center for Design Innovation at Swinburne University of Technology. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, interaction design, the digital city and twins, the need for discovering uncomfortable truths, and many more. Before we jump into the conversation, I would like to apologize for the sound quality on my end. It was not the best. But now, let's start with a proper introduction. Professor Jenny Pei is a leading international researcher in human-centered computing. She is a professor of interaction design at Swinburne University of Technology, Melbourne, Australia, and the director of the Center for Design Innovation in the School of Design and Architecture. She is also a program director of the Future Urban Living Program in Swinburne's Smart Cities Research Institute. Jenny has a transdisciplinary background spanning architecture, computer science, and human-computer interaction. Her research areas include design methods, interaction design for mobiles, augmented reality and virtual reality, digital health, interaction design for smart spaces and digital twins, design for digital workspaces, and user experience design. And with that, Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and appearance on the podcast. Let's start with what does the future of cities mean to you? I imagine I have a slightly different take on this to your other interviewees because my background is not architectural engineering specifically. It was back in the olden days. But where I identify myself now is as an interaction designer of technology. So for me, the future of the cities has to do with the use of technology. So I really am aligning with the classic smart cities as a city that has technology underpinning all of the building infrastructure and the activities that people do. But it's very important from my point of view that we're talking about the use of technology by and with people. So not technology automating everything that you want, but to have people in there with some sense of the ability to understand and control that technology. So it's technology in the home, it's technology perhaps in many areas of the built environment. And the whole idea of adding this technology is possibly as it started a little bit for convenience. The remote control for the television. I can't be bothered getting up and turning that television channel. Oh, look, you've given me something. I can sit here and go ping, ping, ping. Brilliant. That's great technology. And I think a lot of this smart thinking maybe started with this idea of convenience or even extending what people can achieve and what they can do, just making life a bit easier. But now I think it's really important that we look at this technology and think about how it's going to move us towards a more sustainable future. And that is if we're not already too late. I mean, there's a lot of feeling, and especially with the young people, I feel so sorry for the young people when they look at the future and they just go, oh, okay. Thanks, all you old people. You've really ruined it for us. (laughs) I'm allowed to say you bastards. Anyway, they're probably sitting there saying that. 
So if we're not already too late, because we haven't been listening. You know, when I was young, scientists were saying, oh, look, the, the temperature's changing. Oh, look, we can't keep digging up coal and burning it. Oh, there's a hole in the ozone layer. Oh, well, we'll just get a better tan. You know, it's just been really, really silly. So we haven't been listening to scientists. They've had the answers. They've had solar vehicles. They've had solar power. For many, many years, I mean, I created a solar-powered hot water heater in my high school science project when I was 14. So we knew about it and we knew we should think about it. For me, the future of a city is a digital city, but it's not just designed and curated by computer scientists and engineers and governments acting as if they know what's best for us, but it's a city that's formed from the bottom up. So for me, it's a user-centred, interaction-designed bottom-up digital city. So that's the future for me. It's a technology answer, but that's my area. Using the technology in this bottom-up approach and to measure and understand our environment sounds really, really amazing. Can we go back to just your first sentence? What does interaction design mean? When I first came to Swinburne and I was sitting in an interview and they said, oh, this is a Department of Communication Design. And I said, oh, isn't that the same as interaction design? And then very first day I met Jane Burry and she said, don't we all do interaction design? And yes, we do. We all have, we all design and interact with it. But in the computer science area, which is the school I came out of, the discipline I came out of most recently, interaction design means interaction design for computing or for technology. So it's how do people understand how to operate a piece of technology? How do they make the technology do what they want it to do? So how do they interface and interact with technology? And it used to be computer screens. So when I started, we were all just talking about computers. Then we were talking about mobile phones. Now we're talking about moving through the house and controlling it by our movement. So it has advanced beyond the very visual to a much more physical and tactile kind of experience of interacting. This very well ties into your future of cities that technology used by people to understand the environment. You said that it is not too late to tackle climate change and be more sustainable. Do you really think so that we can? Uh, I said I hope it's not too late. (laughs) And that's one of my biggest fears is that Mm. it is too late. I do fear that whatever we do at this point, are we in a downward trajectory that we really can't change? Already when I was younger, and this is very personal, but already I didn't have children because I was worried about the world their future would have in. What would the future of the world be for any children that I had? So I was already worrying, like in my 20s, about where the world was going and whether I should be adding to the population or whether I could bear to put someone in that had to then take on whatever happened. Thank you very much for sharing this personal aspect. So you mentioned that climate change and sustainability is your biggest fear. What are the other fears and concerns for you? We did talk about having technology to know what's happening. There's a whole new research area called digital twinning where they can create a digital twin of the city and then look at that and do modelling and do predictive and do you know, simulations and get a feel for if I change this, what happens? If I change that, what happens? So this idea that we have some technology, we have a lot of data, and I just worry that even though we have all that, people will not change fast enough. I really worry that people are quite selfish and self-involved. 
And they can't even do the simplest things to change. You know, there are still people who can't even put the very recyclable aluminium cans in a recycle bin, right? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. They won't walk the extra one step. There's people who get in their car and drive two blocks down to go to the shop. And I don't know. I think industry is probably a much bigger contributor to those kind of issues. But seriously, if every person, and I don't just mean the ordinary people living in their houses in ordinary suburbs, every person, like through all the layers, were really concerned about, mate, what difference can I make today, tomorrow? My second biggest fear, apart from that we're too late, is that people won't change or they won't change fast enough. My other fear is that, and this is a little bit of a bugbear, that universities and academic research is really no longer being given the freedom to be able to tell people the true hard facts or predict on the data they know about because we don't get free research time. We do get funded by a government, which now currently has a say as to which projects get funded, even though it's peer-reviewed. So people in your area have looked at your project, your discovery project that you've decided you would like to do. They've said, yes, this is great. And then the minister at the last minute can say, no, that doesn't align with our national priorities. And you go, all right, well, that's the government having a say about where the truth lies or what we're going to learn about then how much truths are we going to uncover there? How many uncomfortable truths might there be? Or how are we going to be driven in directions that aren't necessarily where a pure thinking academic might go? You don't get that space to do that. So it concerns me that universities are currently trying to be run like a business. What is the biggest obstacle to create this free thinking? Money. (laughs) It's money. So I think it's Scandinavia where I've come from. I worked there for 10 years. We used to just get a research time and we could get some money to support that. And you could do whatever drove you. It was very much a personal thing. And that's because the government gave the university the money to divide it up and do with it as it wished. It wasn't like all of us begging for a little bit of cash here and a little bit of cash there from different funds or from industry. It was very much that the government in Scandinavia or the governments are supporting education and research within the university sector without them having to beg or be part of bigger projects that those external bodies are defining. So I think that makes a difference. Is this a cultural difference between Europe or Scandinavia and Australia, or this is a global shift? Interesting. So there always this thing, there always has been this kind of thing in Australia where we look to Europe and we look even to America to see where the future might go. So we look at them as, as Australia being a little bit of a follower or a little bit behind all of that fast-moving latest knowledge we seem to have trouble keeping up with what's happening there but i think from scandinavia's point of view it's a much more socialistic society so we have become a little bit enamored with the american model of capitalism or whatever you want to call it the american model of gaining personal wealth i think the scandinavians sit quite happily being taxed a whole lot the tax system there is a lot heavier But the society is quite happy that that tax money will then go back into things like health and education and important things that everybody should have access to. Scandinavia is even more special than the rest of Europe in terms of public support for that kind of research and education. You also mentioned that 
it's really good to have the opportunity to just think about the future of cities, for example, or anything else you are drawn to. And I completely agree with that, that the free thinking is very important to find the uncomfortable truths. How can you make sure that although you are thinking freely, you are creating something which is useful for the world? So it's not just about, I'm drawn to very unpractical topics. How can we make free thinking in research while also providing useful results for the world? I think we just have to leave that up to the individuals. I think Yes, sure, there will be some research that we don't directly apply to future of cities or to sustainability or to whatever. And I'm okay with that. But I just want the free thinking that we could benefit from to not be hampered in any way. So we already have a lot of knowledge about technology and smart technologies. And we have a lot of smart people. And I think there's enough people that are committed to an interesting or to a sustainable future that we can trust in them. I think, again, it's it. There needs to be a level of trust towards academics as well. Yeah, some people will sit and look at the history of macrame or whatever. And that's fine. That's of interest. You know, our lives are enriched by many facets of knowledge. Some knowledge will go towards the future of the cities and I just think we need to give people a bit of time to just follow their own paths within that. So the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. Yeah, I think you can't you can't make people be creative or make people go in a certain direction, but you can allow things to emerge. Then if we can find useful solutions I hope this is an opportunity for the future of cities. What are your three biggest opportunities for the future of cities? So as I said, we already have a lot of knowledge. We have smart technologies. We have smart people. We have a planet which is still alive, although I would regard it as limping. But what we need to do, an opportunity here is that we need to prioritize and get work out what needs to be done now. And that's really That's a difficult thing. It's a big, big question. And so part of my interest, again, in that digital twinning is it's all very well to model things and to have all of this knowledge, but how do you then make it available to the people who need to know what to do? So it's not just a high-level planning mechanism. It's also something that feeds trade-offs to people. I'm always sort of going food takeaway container that's recyclable. Do I spend the time rinsing and washing it in the sink and then putting it in the recycle bin or should it just go to landfill? Which one is going to use less energy, have less of a footprint? And I don't know. So there's all these trade-offs that I'm sure the knowledge is in the world. It's not that we have to invent new technologies or invent new mechanisms. The knowledge is in the world. What we need to do is translate it to a form that people can access. So there's an opportunity there of taking what we already know and making it transformed into accessible knowledge. So I guess one of my, again, part of the big opportunity is behaviour change of people. Everybody needs to get a little bit committed to this about worrying about the future, not just saying, okay, well, yeah, they ought to fix it. They, the thems, really ought to do something. No, it's me. I ought to do something. I think that's the opportunity is teaching people or getting some behaviour change happening. 
understanding that I can do something differently instead of waiting for someone to do something different. Yes. Then I think into that comes the technology because that is available to tell us what the trade-offs are, but also to reach into our lives, giving us access to that information. And that takes interaction design. So I need the technology or the digital information to be designed in a way that I completely understand it and I know how to apply it. And that takes design. Is it easy to create such an informative, interactive design if you have the data and the technology behind it? Yes. So the knowledge is there. We've been teaching it for 25 years, even further. It goes back even further that people have understood how to, and then communication design as an area, people have understood how people take information in, how they perceive things, cognitive behaviour, all of that stuff. We have the knowledge. We just need to get together and help disseminate it. And that's also part of what I think is part of the solution is the transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary collaborations. Could you give us an example of such a collaboration? I'm involved with a lot of research projects where I'm working with people from different disciplines. So I'm working on projects with astrophysicists and sports scientists and computer scientists and myself as an interaction designer, I'm looking at how people do decision making. So whenever we bring knowledge in from other disciplines, so we've pulled in the knowledge from how people can identify different star systems. We've pulled in the knowledge from how sports people make decisions about which way to go. We've pulled in decisions from how aviators or how air traffic controllers make decisions about how to align things, how they work under pressure. And then we put in me with some interaction design knowledge. And so then we can look at how do you design technology that can then communicate the best decisions to make. I always find from that, from little conversations in a room with three or four people from different disciplines, people kind of build on each other's thoughts. And then you come up with something, oh, something. So it's not new knowledge, but it's newly reconstructed. It's put together in a different configuration. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, okay, that will take us much closer to our end point if we do that. You have been teaching in the last 25 years. (laughs) How has your teaching and its content changed in relation how the world has changed? Because I would assume that since we have more information about behavior, more information on human psychology, I would assume that interaction design has also evolved. Yes, and it does. But I think there is this certain stability to human cognition and human behavior that does not change. Psychology is it and I'm not an expert here, but psychology is moving forward to understand the complexity of the things we deal with now. So as we said earlier, there's so much data. There's so many competing for our attention in the world. It just gets more and more and more crowded. And, of course, the way we deal with that, I assume, has to change over time. So for me, for my teaching, it's moved from a very simple 2D environment into 3D environments, which is what all the virtual reality stuff is doing, but also now into like mega environments where everything has data points so you can sense everything about everything that's happening around you what is the temperature there what is the sound levels you know the complexity of the information we can now feed into an interface is quite amazing computing has gone off the desktop into everything which is where the whole smart building thing comes about because it's gone off this 
2D screen into the worlds we inhabit. It's pervasive, it's ubiquitous, it's all around. And so designing for that has become more complex. And I think what has evolved for me in my teaching is different methodologies for how to understand that better. So we need to understand the world and the technology in that world and people's responses for that technology and people's needs and how it can fulfill them. There's a broadening of methodologies and, again, they've been drawn from other disciplines. So we've gone and looked at, well, how does psychology understand that? Oh, how do geographers understand the scope of the land? All right, well, that's now important. How do architects understand spatial things? Because that's now important for us as well. So technology sits in a spatial context, then we need to understand that. So I think, again, there's the multidisciplinary thing, that understanding is from multi multiple disciplines becomes important now in a technology sense because technology is overlaying so many areas. And you also said that you haven't seen really a change in interaction design. Why do you think there hasn't been a big change? It's expensive. It costs the profits go down. We're still an extremely profit-driven society. And so to do proper usability testing costs money. So a lot of a lot of the websites just do what they can and get by. But also nowadays, a lot of people adjust to the technology they're using if they use it regularly. But for intermittent users, people who don't use things very regularly, then we hit all these problems that, oh, actually, this is really difficult. You know, I sat with my father trying to use the health system websites and he was supposed to use it at 80 and I'm sitting there going oh my god I'm a professor of interaction design and I cannot get into this website to get you a cleaner or whatever it was it was hopeless and I'm just going how do people who haven't got a daughter who's a professor of interaction design actually get onto these social <laughs> services now that they're all online they we're taking away the possibility for my dad to go and talk to someone which is all he wanted to do some companies make a well I think the reason Apple took off in the 80s and the 90s was that they had some of the top usability, some of the most interesting top usability experts working for them. They put that into their product and then it became the product that the non-tech people went to because it was seen as more intuitive to use and they did put a lot of effort into that. What are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities for you? We have the digital infrastructures. We have the sensing capabilities. They're already embedded in our cities. It's not fancy technology. You can have little drones. They're cheap. Lots of cameras. They're cheap. Lots of sensing devices. They're cheap. So we already have a lot of the stuff we need to actually understand the city as it is and understand what little changes can make a difference. If we were to spend the time, and there are people who are spending the time, understanding if I shut this window, if I do this, what are going to be the different things? So again, back to the digital twin, it gives you this chance to try out different scenarios so that you really do understand what implications of little changes are. So the strength is we already have all the technology. We can invent other things, sure, but our current technological capabilities are enough. And I think we have enough people with the skills and the knowledge to do that. So that's really positive. That's great. We know what we're doing there. As we sort of talked about, we have a lot of knowledge about humans and behavior change and psychology and sociology of how people behave together to think about how we can encourage people to make the most sustainable choices. I am a person who, even though I don't think I'm going to win, I'll keep on trying. 
resilience and um, persistence. Persistence. I had a leadership course and I said, I had to go around to all these people who knew me and I said, well, what do you think is my key quality? And persistence came out as one of my key qualities. So I will persist. And I think maybe we all need to just, you know, have persistence in the face of adversity or whatever we think. And I do think another big strength is there are some people, many people who care. And if we can leverage and maybe empower the people who care, then maybe we can do the best, all do our best, design some technologies to support people to do their best and find the best sustainable future forward. I'm very, very happy that you are such a fighter. And that's really good. Persistence. (laughs) Exactly. And then this brings me to my last question. What is your role in establishing the future of cities? I guess it's in my bio somewhere, which was at in the introduction, but I am the program director of the Future Places for Living program of the Smart Cities Research Institute at Swinburne University. So my role in that, and I've been in it for, oh, pretty well ever since I joined, maybe four years now, has been what I see as a thought leader. So coming up with ideas I'm always fascinated by new ideas. So I'm coming up with my own new ideas. But I also see a really important part of my role here is getting the message out to others, not just taking my ideas and getting them out. But I like to gather ideas. And that's why I like being a program leader, because there's a lot of really clever people in my program. And I like to see what they're doing and think of ways to get their messages out there. Again, this They're all in different disciplines. I haven't just got a bunch of designers. I've got all sorts of people from all across the university. And that's why I really like the institutes because they go across the university, they go transdisciplinary. And then you kind of, we've had a few sessions where people get talking and they make connections across different parts. Oh, are you working in that area? I'm working in that area, but a slightly different way of looking at it. And then out of that comes some interesting thinking. So I really like being a facilitator of the bringing together of people from different areas. And I think, again, I say the university needs to support this kind of free thinking. I really like thinking outside the box and I don't think there's a set of steps you can do to be innovative and creative and think outside the box, but you can certainly get situations where this might happen by creating sort of nice discussions. Very interesting when you get a bunch of people in a room to talk about things and sort of thinking that's not politically or not profit-driven. So thinking that is allowed to be just playful or have a go and maybe doesn't always tell the palatable truths, sometimes brings up stuff that we don't want to face, like there are islands disappearing under the sea. What are we going to do? So I also think part of my role is, is to say, okay, let's find a call to action. Let's Let's find points, active points at which we can feel empowered to have a go at changing things. So I think that's also part of my role there. Very reassuring that (laughs) you are a persistent fighter (laughs) and you are trying to get these thinkers together to find some solutions. Finding the power of the people. Exactly. Educate the people who can learn, getting it all to work together. Jenny, thank you so much for your time and your answers. It was amazing to hear them. Do you have any closing thoughts, comments or requests for the audience? Clearly, I would like to see a bit more trust, support and belief in academic and scientific research. But I also understand that that needs to be translated into a form where whoever it is who has to do something with that knowledge, either it's the citizens who will live in the future cities or it's the designers who will design the future cities or the builders who put up the future cities, they need to understand 
that research or that scientific information so that we can all work together and build a better and smarter future. Thank you so much, Jenny. It was really hopeful to hear from Jenny that we already know enough to save the world. We just need to act like it and use our knowledge. Not to mention her persistence to try even in less hopeful situations. If the digital city and the digitalized city are interesting for you, Professor Mark Burry talked about them in episode 42 and Gavin Cotaril elaborated on the digital twins in episode 75. You can find out more about Jenny online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Jenny's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast? 